0: Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your, I'm your host, Jake Kirschman, here with Tim Statesney, um, Senior Director of Premium and PSL Seating uh, at the Las Vegas Raiders. Really excited to talk to Tim about his experience through the industry, his journey, his path, and then ultimately where premium service and premium seating is going. Um, it's certainly one that will adapt a little bit with uh, getting out of COVID-19 whenever that may be. And so, Tim, uh, looking forward to the, to the discussion.
1: Hey Jake, yeah, thanks for having me, appreciate it.
0: So first off, let's cover what PSL stands for because sometimes, you know, the acronyms in in the industry can be confusing to others um, that can mean a couple different things. So let's cover that off the bat.
1: Yeah, um, on my business card, it does say PSL and uh, the the funny guys will say, "Oh, you're the senior director of uh, pumpkin spice latte. That is not (laughs) in fact the case. Personal seat license is, is what we uh, deem the term uh, for folks that are purchasing uh, the opportunity to, to own the seats at Allegiant Stadium. They go by other names, SBL, SSL. Uh, frankly, they're all pretty much the same thing. It's just a matter of uh, legalese and how you've structured the funding for those with, with different venues that have used them as a way to fund uh, new stadiums.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that process quickly because it's it's an interesting one where you're you're building a new stadium at Allegiant, um, you, you've got seats to sell, but then the process to own them and own them for a certain amount of time, it's it's different where you may have a team like the Jets, right, who have been you know at their stadium forever, and then all of a sudden you've got a new stadium here with the Raiders, a little bit different story.
1: Yeah, I think there's certainly a, an element of educating. Uh, potential, for us, it was depositors uh, on what a PSL is, what are the benefits. Um, I think throughout history, maybe over the last 20 years or so, uh, what really the Cowboys being at the forefront of this when they were starting to sell then Cowboy Stadium, at t Stadium, were, really was when there, there were others before that. Um, even the Raiders as far back as coming back to the Coliseum had a, had a PSL. But really, as we know it today, and, and, and there's somewhat of a negative connotation uh, to it, Uh, But, you know, the way in which we would have to explain to people and the way in which they would understand how the money that you are paying towards the PSL not only goes to benefit the stadium, uh, but also how it benefits the individual who holds the rights to that seat. So I would use the example as like uh, bare bones is, you know, when you when you go to a country club and you sign up, there's an initial fee that you would pay to be a part of that country club. And then you have your annual dues. Well, that is a simple way of explaining to somebody how the how the actual payments would work. So you would pay a one-time PSL, you never pay that again, and then you would have your, your ticket payments. What's different, though, when you have a PSL than when you're just a general season ticket holder is, at some point, if you determine that you don't want to come to Raiders games anymore, um, you then have the right to either transfer that PSL to somebody else or resell it to somebody else. So, you know, we don't, obviously, this, we don't see it as an investment of sorts, but at least at the end of the day, you recoup some of that, money that you paid towards the PSL 2, 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, and you walk away uh, free and clear. So so that would be, and at the same time, you then have residual benefits within the stadium. So other events you come into the stadium, depending on where you sit, you have options to purchase tickets to those events. Um, it is it is your seat. You have, you hold the license to that seat. And so, and, and really what it functions as is a, is a funding mechanism to, to build stadiums. So when people bought PSLs through us, they didn't buy them from the Raiders. They bought them from the Clark County Stadium Authority. And not to get too deep in the woods, but it literally goes to pay for the stadium. It doesn't go to sign a wide receiver. Uh, and so that would be how we would try to educate people on what it is, why it's, why it's there, why it's a crucial component to the funding of a, of a new stadium, and where that money goes at the end of the day.
0: No, that's great insight. I mean, sometimes you just look at premium seating and you're like, "Oh, that's you know they're buying the suites, they're buying this." But there, there are a lot of intricacies in terms of how you fund a stadium and whether it's private or public and and all of the different aspects that um, go into it. When you look at the premium seating side and you and you look at a stadium and you you go, "Okay, how many do we build and how many is it going to seat and there's obviously models and, and okay, well, we're going to hit this amount of revenue if we sell out and all that sort of stuff. But the evolution of stadiums and moving into this premium type of entertainment, this premium type of space has evolved over time to where stadiums have more and more and more of them. But sometimes more is not better. So there's this fine balance. How do you go about it?
1: Yeah, no, agreed. And, and so I, when, when myself, um, and others came on board, Dustin, Dustin Vacari, uh, handful of others that came in on our leadership team in Las Vegas, the Raiders had already done a lot of work in terms of pricing models, size of the building. The architect was already on board. They had already had a real solid design. Um, and one of the clues that they uncovered was, was frankly, like, we want this to be a great experience from the fan sitting in row one to the fan sitting at the very top. And we want it to be an intimate stadium, we want it to be loud, we want it to feel like everyone's in the building together, that um, that everyone has a great seat. So couple that with the fact that obviously Las Vegas is not a major market in terms of population. Um, and, and they settled on, you know, studies after studies of what was the appropriate number, they settled on a building that's about 65,000 seats that can then expand upon different events, Super Bowls, et cetera, to get over the, the thresholds needed for, for those types of events. but when we went in and looked at pricing, some of the initial pricing um, discussions and, and analyzing the data, it was telling us one thing. Um, and so as a team, starting probably, I got there in September of 17 as a team, then went back, started to look at some more things, started to survey our deposit list, started to do some focus groups uh, with folks in the market. We went to the Bay Area, we went to LA and, and met with people. and really just went through kind of a fundamental pricing exercise with them and, and showed them different areas and said, what do you think this is worth? And it was a really fascinating exercise. And we got, uh, got back a lot of great feedback from that. And so I think we were able to be really smart about how we priced, where some buildings, if you look at a pricing map, you know, they'll do 50-yard line slivers and, and then kind of generally look to where the section ends on where the, where the architect determined that the turn of the stadium was going to happen. And, and that's your price break. Uh, and I think we looked at things a little bit differently. Take out what the architect is building and look at pricing in terms of what people have told us is a, is a desirable place to sit. And we priced it appropriately to that. And so, so that was the first thing with, with, I would say, general season tickets, club season tickets, that sort of thing. With premium, to your point about less less can be more at some point, I think we understood that that because of the just the lack of, um, you know, Fortune 500 companies, corporate headquarters based in, in An- or in Las Vegas, that it was going to be challenging for us to hit numbers like 270 suites or 370 suites like there is in Dallas. It just that wasn't a reasonable thing to look to, and so the number settled right around 125. And for us, it was important to to constantly again keep in mind that we were trying to provide a great experience, seating experience for those folks, but also not try to um, create spaces just to do it. And, and have a real understanding of like, what would the demand be for these suites? So same thing, went out into the market. How big do you, you know, if, if you're a corporate corporation in Las Vegas, how, big, how many people would you typically come to? How big would you want the suite? What are the terms that you feel comfortable with? And just try to get a real good sense from people who would prospectively be buyers, um, what they would like. And I think again, landed in a spot where we could drive demand and at the same time have enough to where again the the goal being to obviously drive revenue at the same time to the top line as much as possible
0: absolutely and and the experience too is a, is a key component where you know the experience in a suite is different than the experience in a club you know premium club versus you know a loge level right there there's and and I met you back at the Rose Bowl um, when you were there and and you know we kind of had a, a really unique setup where there was these two levels of suites then you kind of had your your club wings, um, you know, sandwiched with a loge box that was kind of the most premium, but then there were some different levels and, and the experience was different in every single one of them based on where they were sitting, you know, how even just the experience of when you walk in the gate to when you leave, um, the food, the beverage, all of that stuff. And so when you think about the experience as a whole, what is the experience and the appetite for change going to be moving forward? Now that we're moving again more towards this experience based environment.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I think you you hit it. Even in that point, when, when you and I first met back in 2014, I think people started to see that the, the diversification of offerings was necessary. So you couldn't you couldn't just create all 16 person suites across the board and, and know that that was going to be right sized for every, individual, corporation, whatever. And you couldn't create a club experience that was going to be the same for everybody. It just people, as we were selling premium before that, we're having conversations and you really were trying to do your best to put people in these, I'll just use the term boxes, and it didn't make sense. And so the Rose Bowl being one, diversify. There's, you know, in that space, there's different sizes of suites, there's different levels, there's different experiences, there's different F&B offerings, there's different you know, at that time, you know, we're offering UCLA only, Rose Bowl only combo. You know, it was like we were providing um, the right fit for everybody. And I think the same applied for us at Allegiant Stadium is we had multiple suites with different experiences, design being pretty similar, but seat quantity, location, amenity package um, from a suite perspective was across the board. So and if somebody wasn't fitting in that in that um box so to speak then we were able to pivot and have conversations down the line with them about our loge offering which again a lot of people have come on the on the uh, forefront of putting loge in buildings as renovations new stadiums now are putting them in prime areas to start so it used to be you're finding maybe a distressed area and you're like these this loge concept or theater boxes or whatever people are calling them like this four person or six person experience that is much more suitable to companies who don't feel as if they get the value of having so many tickets, um, we put them in our best sidelines. So, uh, sidelines. so between goal line and goal lines, we have a Loge product that sits sandwiched in between our suite levels. And so again, thinking about how do you, how do I have a conversation with a company? And they tell me, look, that's way too many tickets. Look, that's way too many events. And I'm, and I'm dropping down and, and constantly having the next potential offering that is the right fit. And that's what we saw. So when we sold our first type of suite, we would get declines. We would, we would categorize them as a certain type of company that wanted a certain experience. And as soon as we had that offering available, we were able to have that conversation with them. Um, and I think it's really, really important, all the way down to experiences in our space for the single game person who doesn't want to commit to a long term. Like how do we provide them an experience when they're in Las Vegas for one weekend um, that can capitalize on something like that and be able to offer a menu of options there too?
0: You mentioned kind of being in Vegas for one weekend. We all know that you don't build a building just for eight, eight days of the year, right? There's a lot of other events that will go on uh, eventually there, whether it be a concert or festival or um, bowl game, whatever the case might be. So how do you build them and, and then kind of alter your product as you go throughout the year, knowing that the event is also different, you might get a different audience.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think, you know, knowing that this building, the the expectation was obviously that the feel and the look and everything about it was going to be the Raiders home field. This is where Raider Nation would come to see football games. But in addition to that, it doesn't pencil out to have a building where you're only playing football games at. And so our expectation is this is going to be the one of the busiest stadiums in the country from, from an activation standpoint, concerts, rodeos, boxing, UFC, all of the different things. And those are all very, very different um, from the type of person who may want to buy that. And so, you know, I think from, from an amenity perspective, we, we offer our, our folks who, who own premium with us the flexibility to pick and choose the ones that they want. If they in turn decline those options, then we would go out and sell them uh, to other people. Look, there's no shortage of information that comes to Las Vegas. I think we, you know, with our partnerships, I think we understand like who potentially is coming in. Uh, We obviously know that there is a, there's a level of visiting team, just going back to the Raiders real quick, the visiting team component, where we know that we are a desirable location for people to come see their team play in Las Vegas. Um, So all of those different things make us again, uh, want to be flexible, um, diversified in our, in our offerings, be able to provide them. But in addition, some of the operational elements of our stadium that we could have this many events and turn these things over pretty quickly, one being the fact that our field retracts Similar to State Farm Stadium now in 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 Phoenix or Glendale is our, our our field can retract, meaning that we are not obviously playing on subfloor or putting subfloor on top, and we're doing things to 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 be able to activate the stadium on more dates. Uh, UNLV shares the stadium with us as well, and so I was it was bought, brought on and in, in mind that we would be able to use this much much more than your ten home football games a year, and for us from from a from a selling standpoint that makes things very easy. Um, You know, our hope is that we can start, you know, putting events back on the calendar, obviously dealing through COVID, we haven't had the chance to, to go out into the market yet and really push for some of these other events and understand what the desire is to come to a concert or, or, um, you know, other things, a a college football uh, event that we have Las Vegas Bowl or Pac-12 championship, like, those are, those are some unknowns that we're going to figure out along the way. Um, some of my experience at the Rose Bowl, will lean on with that because I understand that some of it comes kind of last minute, but, but we'll be ready. And I think we'll have, again, we'll have those types of products to put any type of fan in, whether you want to sit, you know, in the highest level of our stadium and still have a great view or, you know, sit in, in, in a really uber premium velvet rope behind the velvet rope type of experience uh, in our stadium.
0: Where does, where do you, where does technology come into play in terms of premium, you know, experience premium seating? Because uh, certainly again, you know, having the people that you're with and then the F and B experience and the experience of the game or the event is one thing, but then technology to kind of enhance it all, make it seamless, make it more of a, an efficient, you know, travel experience, whatever the case might be, how does technology play into it? And then Based on what you have now, where do you see it going in terms of technology continuing to enhance?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when people ask me what I do and competition within markets that I've worked in, the, the biggest competition we have is, the, is people's time and their convenience factor. So being able to get into a facility quickly and being able to access everything you want to access quickly, especially if you're paying at the top end of those. Um, and so we, we incorporated things like dedicated drop-off lanes for people, um, sitting in our, in our VIP spaces. So, you know, you will have the ability to be dropped off at the front gates without having to deal with the traffic and congestion and those types of things. Once you're in the building, uh, we will be, we still do have the traditional, uh, paper ticket. Um, that's an important component to, to our owner. And, and that'll be something that, that we always have. Um, but also, you know, obviously there's a mobile component too for folks that want to use that. So mobile ticketing is, is an incredible, incredible piece for those that are, that are used to using it, but you also would have a, a paper ticket. And so we'll, those, are, those will be some things that we have challenges with, I think, um, that we've thought a lot about over the last few years, um, because most teams have gone fully mobile and we will we'll continue to, to provide uh, that paper ticket for 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 the foreseeable future. But once you're in our building, how do we get you F&B quickly, efficiently, high quality, um, without pre-packaging things and making it feel like, you know, we're just moving people along in lines. And so we've thought a lot about that through our F&B partners and, and to me, you know, the ability for somebody to um, to get something before they even acknowledge that they needed it is one of the things that we've really been focusing on. So you think about the finest places that you've ever eaten um, or, or, or stayed at hotels, resorts, and it's almost like they can read your mind in terms of what you want. And some of that's, um, you know, capturing their information and understanding what their preferences are. But, but as basic as things like when, when you leave your table at a nice restaurant, they come. And when you come back, your, your napkin is sitting nicely there. Like how do you really elevate that experience for somebody in, in some of these spaces? And frankly, We've got, we've got the best competition in the world and a standard has been set from, from that type of hospitality experience up and down the four mile strip that we have to um, acknowledge and see as a challenge to try, and, to try and match and exceed because that's the expectation of the people that purchase from us. And so that's how we've thought about it. So how do you efficiently do that? I think there's technology obviously uh, that's a component of that, but I think it's also just training people to use the technology. Um, and understanding that it's there for them. And then incorporating that with, with a continued personal touch and capturing their information as you go, I think if you're, if you're doing that, I think that game one is, should, should not be the best game they ever went to. It should increasingly get better for them and their guests as they go because we're learning about their tendencies. We're learning about what they like, um, capturing that and then executing on it on the back end.
0: Let's pivot real quick as we start to wrap up, because I, I want to get to kind of the biggest difference between college and and pro, right? And, you know, the difference in premium seating and in both areas, understanding that, um, you know, one's got a little bit more tradition than the other, different fan base, different markets, et cetera. So um, you spent some time at the Rose Bowl, you spent some time in Oklahoma. Um, I'm probably missing a few, but just overall, um, your, your biggest differences and then also similarities, uh, between the college and pro game.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think there is some differences. I think the way that, um, the way that the sales process is structured is a little bit different in the college athletics world. Um, not, not good or bad. I would say that the pace is a little bit slower from a sales cycle perspective. Uh, one of the things that, um, Michael Alford, who uh, who I reported to, is a senior associate AD at Oklahoma at the time. He's, you know, I came from California. He wanted to make sure that I wasn't coming in with this philosophical approach to sales, like, hey, let's just let's get in, let's get out, like quick, easy, um, hard sales. And that, you know, knowing anyone who knows me knows that that is not my process, and I can explain that pretty easily. Uh, But at the same time, there is a big fear that that is how you would come in. So. It, it, you know, the perception maybe that pro sports is a little more cutthroat and, and college athletics is a little softer where you, where you meet somebody three or four times before ever, ever even asking them for, for a couple bucks. Um, I think there is some truth to that on both sides. I think, I think obviously you have an ownership group that is trying to, to nobody's surprise drive revenue right on the NFL or, or any pro team. Like there is a bottom line. They didn't buy the team as a charitable contribution. You know, they're, they are doing it, um, with with the goal end goal in mind to to win championships and, and make some money on the college side you have so many more stakeholders involved in decisions and and the approach that it makes things run a little slower that's not again that's not bad it's just you have to understand that um, whereas you may have uh, you know a top hundred donors all of them are going to have some involvement in what the Experiences like in that stadium, and then you've got people who went to that school. And not to discount somebody who's a fan of a team, but they probably never played for that team. But you've got people that went to that school. It is a part of them. The affinity that they have for that university is is just different than what you can incorporate with a fan who just grew up as a fan. Again, not different. You can't you can't bulldoze them into doing things um, that that they don't want to do because it's important to them beyond just a football game or just a basketball game. And so the selling process was a little um, different, lighter, much more conversational, um, face-to-face, uh, especially in Oklahoma. We had a lot of folks that were regionally, like they didn't live in Norman, Oklahoma. They lived in Dallas or they lived in Tulsa or they lived in Houston or whatever. And so we'd have to go down and meet with them face-to-face. It was a really important component, which I genuinely enjoyed. So there's the sales process, but then at the end of the day, it's providing the best experience for people. And people want, again, diversification of of inventory. So at Oklahoma, we had all of the things that people would want. Um, The unique thing there was that we were selling an end zone product. So you're selling premium type amenities in an end zone. So you were talking to them about like, we've, we've spent decades telling people that the 50 yard line is the best. And now you're telling me that like, sitting behind the field goal post is the best. And so that was a different education process as well. Um, the funding is, is just different. These teams, you know, they, it is critical. The only reason we were there to, to sell the premium seating at Oklahoma was to enhance the student athlete facilities. It wasn't to pay somebody else, it wasn't to do it. Was, it was genuinely that was a part of our conversation with people. This pays for that. And this then helps recruits and then this helps grow the brand nationally. And those types of conversations, whereas for us at the Raiders, you know, we're talking about a football team and being in the best stadium in the country. And those things are, are all great, but they don't hit people the same way that I would say some of those conversations did, where they feel like they're really affecting a student athlete's life. Um, and that was an important piece and it was, was a really special thing to be able to go sell. And, and the same with the Rose Bowl you know, conserving and improving such a historic place and making it last for another hundred years was, was that's above and beyond your favorite jersey. You know, that was a cool conversation to have with people. And we would, I would tell people all the time, like we would talk to people that went to USC and they go, why are you having this conversation with me? I don't, I didn't go to UCLA. And I would say, I don't care. I'm not talking about UCLA. I'm talking about the Rose Bowl and what it means and the Rose Bowl game and what that means. And I guess you don't plan on ever going to a Rose Bowl game again, based on your comment and those types of like, it's bigger than, then again, just a hat or a, or, a, or a sweatshirt or a jersey. And so that's where I think it hits a little different. You just got to be a little bit more aware of that when you're talking to people on the collegiate side, as opposed to maybe the cutthroat NFL side.
0: Yeah, definitely some different approaches and, and perspectives to try and put yourself in the other person's shoes uh, in a a different way. Um, As we wrap up, the biggest lesson you've learned from sales, hands down, biggest lesson you've learned that regardless of career versus personal, um, something that's helped you kind of along your journey.
1: I think that when I realized uh, that my listening skills was the key to my success and that the best listeners are the best salespeople, um, that changed who I was as a salesperson, it changed who I was as a manager too, right? Like I was, I was able to listen to people, people that I manage and we're all in a sales environment and I go on meetings with them, but I'm talking about just internally, but, but being a good listener and, and really walking into a situation and saying to somebody like, tell me more and then listening to them. And then if there isn't a potential solution that I can provide saying, that's great. Like I hear you, maybe down the line, there's a great fit. But I think people get so caught up in what they want and they want and they want and they ask questions and then they stop and they're waiting to ask the next question and they're not listening. I think that's where salespeople probably get into the most trouble because I've seen it happen a million times. They're like, I'll look at, you know, a, a less experienced rep or whatever, and I'll look at them and go, did you hear what he said or she said that, that your response to that was like out of outer space? It didn't even correlate to what they were just saying. They're giving you their objection or they're giving you a positive and they're not listening because your adrenaline's pumping or whatever, like at the point in which you calm down, I think it comes with confidence and doing it a bunch of times, like calm down, listen, and then respond appropriately. Uh, I think that's the best advice that I could give everybody. I'm not anyone who's ever worked for me. I'm not a scripter. I struggle with putting people in positions where I'm like, read this and respond. Like that doesn't work for me. I want to train you to be able to have conversations that can, that can kind of go any which way and play in the gray area um, and I think that the first key to that is listening to, to others.
0: Outside of practice, how do you get better at listening?
1: Honestly, I think it's just a very internal thing. So, so one of the key things that I think people don't do enough of, and I've gotten into it a lot recently And this, you know, again, conversation could go, uh, go a lot of ways, but meditation, mindfulness, um, staying in the moment, Um, and, and, and a lot of, again, people get over their skis when they're anxious and they're excited and they're not staying in the conversation. They're not present. And so not to get over overly, but, but being present and and stopping and saying like, I know, you know, before I would get, if it was going to an external meeting, like stop, sit in my car for 30 seconds and get my thoughts together, calm down, and then go into the meeting as opposed to racing. And some of that, again, I'll go, I could go into preparation, like. If you're not prepared then you don't then you don't have a chance either but at the very least if you're if you're not glossing over or missing cues that they're telling you um, you've got a better chance and I think when you're selling people uh, a product or anything, the ability to actually respond to them in a way that that they're having a normal conversation I think is just so important and so some of it's saying in the moment so so for me I guess it is practice but you know, daily meditation and learning and learning how to just compose yourself and be in the moment, I think is a really critical component to, to being effective at really anything, family relationships, whatever. But I think in sales, it's really good to just calming and, um, and being able to engage people and not get distracted.
0: Absolutely. I've gotten, you know, I've, I've done yoga for years now uh, because it helped on the physical side from a, you know, an athletic standpoint, but um, you know, there's also a mental component to it as well. But to your point, I got big into meditation this year because it teaches you to slow your thoughts down. And I relate it to being back on the field. You know, if you were on the mound and, and facing, you know, the next hitter, if you were hyperventilating or if your adrenaline was going so fast, like the, the game speeds up on you. Yep. And if you're able to control your breath, you can slow the game down, right? Because your your breath and your mind are connected in that sense. And so, um, I think there's, there's a lot, again, this conversation could go into yeah. right field, you know, and, and that's, maybe we'll have you on again to talk about um, on that sort of stuff. But I think it's just, it's such an interesting component of how you approach kind of the day to day and then ultimately how that affects long-term success. So, Tim, um, any other uh, quick thoughts uh, and insights on, on premium seeding, the experience? Uh, we covered a ton today, so thank you.
1: Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Um, no, I think, you know, I think, again, we could go, this conversation can go for hours and I think it's ever-changing. I think, I think the best in this business are constantly looking for those new things and, and I'm trying to do that as well. So I think podcasts like this are, are fantastic for people to learn um, maybe a little bit and, and feel free to provide comments to me as well. If, if there are any comments or questions, I, I'm happy to engage with people, um, you know, one-on-one.
0: Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate your time, thoughts, perspectives. Uh, certainly enjoyed it, and definitely we'll have you again on in the in the near future. Talk a little bit about meditation, sales process. Uh, it'll, it'll be
1: a fun one. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it.